So um, the, the title of my message this morning then is going to be very simple. It is that God can. That's as simple as it is. And I think because we've got, been in worship such a long time, I don't want you guys to, uh, to, to not be able to concentrate to, to, uh, while, while, me preach, while I'm preaching. So if I can ask you just quickly, if you can just turn to the person next to you and say, God can. But you have to mean it. And then the other person on the other side just say, God can. <laughs> We're speaking it prophetically. And now all the, all the extroverts are okay, all the introverts hated that, but now just turn to the person behind you. Some of you need to do the person in front of you, just say, God can. <laughs> God can, and if you meet that person, maybe some of you haven't met. But I actually, just as we were worshiping, I actually felt in a sense that, although it's something I felt for Stellenbosch and I preached into Stellenbosch, I just in worship actually felt something of a prophetic message for you guys, that it would be a building block for Somerset West. And if I can be bold to say that, something that might flow in to you guys in the next couple of weeks and couple of months, it's a bold, it's a station because I know that Richard and the elders here ultimately will decide that. But I really actually feel like it is something that God wants to build in you, just this, this, uh, this courage to be able to say that God can. And the thing about that is, is you can say it with your words like many things, you know, they say the biggest gap is between your heart and your head. That's a massive gap. And it's so easy for us to, with our words and with our knowledge, say God can. Yes, yeah, sure, we believe that God can. But to get it deep into our hearts, to say it with conviction and to live it, that's a different story. And for God to get us there is not an easy path to follow. For God to get you to a place where that is said out of conviction, where it's something that you live and where your life attests to it, where you move in the power of God, where you see the power of God at work, God needs to take you through a journey. And so what I'm gonna do is I wanna look at the life of Moses this morning, and I'm gonna read you a, a couple of passages out of the beginning of Exodus, uh, basically Exodus one and two. And I wanna show you the journey that God took Moses on for him to come to a place to be able to say with conviction that God can. And Moses most of you would know, I think a lot of you would know exactly who Moses is. He's a prolific figure in the Old Testament. In the book of Exodus, we read of this guy. And I do believe that when we read of him, the book of Exodus, I believe, is a prophetic book. It's not just a historical book where we learn about the ways of God in the Old Testament. In fact, the New Testament teaches us that a lot of the Old Testament is what we call a shadow of what would, what would come in the New and I think, I really believe that the book of Exodus is a shadow of what would come in the New Testament. So if you read the book of Exodus through the lens of the New Testament, it starts changing your perspective of the book. It's no longer only just the story about Moses, the people of God going through, uh, through the sea, hanging around in the wilderness, being shaped uh, by God, eating, eating manna and quail and going into the promised land. It's not only that, it starts becoming a prophetic message of what Jesus would come and do in us and through us as his people. Moses, if you look at it that way, becomes a type of Jesus. He becomes a picture of Jesus in the Old Testament for us. Egypt becomes a picture of the world in the Old Testament for us, where the people of God were held in captivity, right? Going through the Red Sea, I believe, becomes a picture of baptism, that when we get saved out of the world, when God, through Jesus, takes us out of the world and 
into the next phase of our lives, the first thing we pass through is through the waters of baptism and the world gets broken off like the Egyptians died. And then also as we wander through the wilderness, I think some of you can say amen to this, that the, the, the will of God, walking in the will of God and growing in the will of God sometimes feels like a bit of a desert. It's not always easy. But the promise is always of a promised land, a land to be inherited. That is why we are the Joshua generation, those who will inherit the promises of God, go into the promised land. And that is not only heaven, I think it's a reality for us today to live in the promised land in our lives today. So it's a prophetic message, but, but for, for God to come and make Moses into the person that he needed to be, he needed to give him a revelation of the magnificent power of God. And when he saw that, it changed the way that Moses lived. And I believe that God wants us and wants you to see that this morning. So I'm gonna start in Exodus one, right in the beginning. And I wanna show you that before, before the revelation comes to us that God can, the question needs to be answered, God can what? What can God do? And why does he wanna do it? In a sense, if God can is the answer, we need to first know what the problem is. If we wanna be those who wrestle for the revelation in our hearts to say, Lord, make me someone who really knows that you can come into any situation and you can change it, that's the God we serve. I first need to know how big that problem is. Because if I don't see the problem as big enough, then I'm gonna try and go in there and rectify the problem. But if I see the bigness of the problem, if I see how Satan is working in this world, something is me, in me is gonna cry out, Lord, what you did in Moses, come and do in me because I wanna be a conduit for you. I wanna be an agent of your work in the world because I see the problem. So I'm gonna start by looking at the problem. Why did God choose Moses? Where did he send him to? What was Satan doing in the world? Because I wanna say prophetically what, we, what he was doing then is exactly what he's doing now, but I think some of us are blind to it. And therefore, we don't cry out to God to be the solution. So I, I think there are three things from the book of Exodus that, that are problems for us today. And maybe I'll start with Exodus 1 verse 8. Now, just some context before I read this. Joseph was basically the guy sold into slavery. Those of you who remember the story, right? He was sold into slavery by his brothers. He went into Egypt. But then God started using him in, in Egypt and the people of God started growing and multiplying in Egypt. It's a beautiful story. It was the hand of God on Joseph. And they had a lot of favor in their, on them, but, but after a while, these people of God, the Hebrews, started becoming slaves to the Egyptians. And it's so interesting, in the book of Exodus, there's this, this verse that really stuck out to me. It's Exodus 1 verse 8, and it says, Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. So here's the thing, the first problem is that as people, we tend to forget the work of God that has come before. And we tend to move backwards and not forward as the people of God. You see, the world is actually the devil's. I think many of us wanna believe it's God's world. No, I think when he comes again, that's gonna be God's world. Jesus is gonna rule and reign. But at this stage, the devil, the Bible says, is the God of this world. And so he is influencing, just look around you, look at the states of the world and you tell me who is the God of this world at this stage. It is the devil. And so the devil wants to come and when there's a move of God, like through Joseph, he wants the law of atrophy to take place. Meaning if you leave anything in the desert long enough, it is gonna, it, it's gonna move backwards. It's gonna break apart. 
And what Satan wants to do is he says, yes, there have been moves of God, but I will cause people to forget and move backwards. If I look at this country, there have been genuine moves of God in this country. Genuine moves of God. I got saved into the Dutch Reformed Church, and I'm really thankful for that. You know, the Dutch Reformed Church was planted out of a genuine move of God in this country. It was a move of the Holy Spirit. Andrew, um, uh, Andrew Sely, <laughs> Andrew Murray uh, in Wellington, in Worcester, uh, in, in some of those places, there was a genuine move where he was uncomfortable by the move of the Spirit that came in as they were holding these meetings and people started uh, speaking in tongues and, and the Holy Spirit started falling on people. And out of that move of God, churches were planted all over South Africa. If you go into any town, you'll find a pep store, you'll find a bottle store, and you'll find a Dutch Reformed Church. <laughs> It's basically what you'll find, and that was birthed out of a genuine move of God, but what does Satan do? He will always try and get in there and make the work of God move backwards, and if we as the people of God do not wake up and say, God, I want to be part of the solution, I want to move the kingdom of God forward again, then we're not going to contest for this revelation that God can do it. That's the first problem. The devil always attacks works of God. Think of your life. Think of the breakthrough that you've experienced. How many of you know that you don't stay in that breakthrough forever unless you keep fighting in the Lord for it? You can break free from something. You better know the devil is going to try and get in there again. He's always pushing back. But the Bible says we are those who take the kingdom by force, right? We are supposed to be those. That's what Satan did there. First thing, he lets the people forget. Second thing is he lets the people live meaningless lives. That's another problem why we need God. Um, Exodus 1 verse 13 to 14. So the Egyptians ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field and in all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. You know, when we look at the world around us and we look at those people who are unredeemed, who have not come to salvation, not come to the knowledge of God, I look at them and I think, you think that your life has purpose, your life is only slavery to this world. We need to see that. I think sometimes we get caught up in the trap of materialism and we see people flourishing around us materially. They've got money. They've got jobs. They've got families who look like they're doing well. But if our eyes are not open to the fact that that is meaningless without God, then why do we need God? Why do we need God in those situations? It's the second thing that God, the, the devil wants to come and do. He wants to make us those people and the people around us just those who are slaves to this world. Third thing, and this is an interesting one, Satan was trying to attack the people of God, and this is why Moses had to come. Again, this is why God wants you to have that revelation. He wants you to also be a type of Moses in situations. Third thing he does is he attacks the men. Exodus 1 verse 22, then Pharaoh commanded all his people, every son that is born to the Hebrews, you shall cast into the Nile but you shall let every daughter live. You see how God is destined to be is for men and women obviously to be created equal. I feel like in our context in Stellenbosch, if I preach this, I'm stepping on so many landmines. I think some of you of the more mature generation, there's not maybe so many landmines. I think you understand this a little bit more inherently than the young people today. But there is something of leadership on the household that God has given to men. And if Satan can come and he can take men out of their rightful place, he can destroy the fabric of society, 
and he can destroy the Christian church. He can do that. If he can come into men's lives and he can kill them spiritually, attack them, bring pornography into their lives, bring lust into their lives, bring a desire to work before loving your family and loving God, if he can bring those things into your life, if he can come to the men, then he is successful for the family. Because there is something of headship on the men and Satan knows that he will come to the men. So the problem is massive. And only God can. Only God can. The problem is, I just want to repeat that, that people forget about God. God needs us to be those conduits that go and say, my God is able. I will be part of the solution. Satan lets people live meaningless lives as slaves to this world. We need to wake up to the reality and say, come on, people, there is more. And Satan will attack the men, and he will take them out of their rightful place. He will feminize them. Look at society around you. I don't know how much social media all of you are following, but there, there used to be an attack on marriages. Today, it's an attack on whether a man is a man and a woman is a woman. That's the attack currently. Satan is trying to come into the fabric of society. He really is. And so what is the solution? God says, there is a problem, and you need to see it today. There is a problem in this world. It's a real problem. People need God, and God wants to use us to be part of the solution. But what does God do? He says, I will raise up a man, and I will give him a revelation that I can be the solution, but that he can't. So what he does is he takes Moses through a process that I believe he wants to take each of us through. And again, if I can, I know not many people like it. I don't like it when people do this, but I'm going to do it today because I needed the message to stick. I'm wanting it to stick. I want you to please say after me, I can, I can't, God can. Just one more time. I can, I can't, God can. That's exactly the journey he wants to take Moses through. Oh, shucks, thanks. I baptize you. <laughs> sorry that's exactly the journey that God wants to take each of us on because to get to the revelation that God can he first needs to take you to through steps of maturity and he did this with Moses I want to look at it Moses start with started with thinking that he can be part of the solution then he realized oh shucks I can't and then he only realized that God can so let me start with the beginning So Moses, I'm not going to tell the full story. Please go read the beginning of Exodus. But Moses is sent uh, into Egypt. He grows up under the Pharaoh and his daughter raises him. Thanks, Craig. Sorry about that. Um, He raises him. (laughs) There we go. And uh, and I'm going to read Exodus 2 verse... 11 to 12, and, and Moses obviously realizes that he sees the problem. You're going to see it now. He sees the massive problem in the world. Oh, man, I'd like, I actually just want to pray quickly for us that God would open up our eyes to the problem that there is in this world. I think the reason we don't rely on God is we don't see the problem. We don't see the magnitude of the problem, a world lost without Jesus. Don't you think we would all live different lives, me included, all of us, if we really believed that there's a world that honestly only needs God. I know you believe it. I believe it, but I need to believe it, believe it. (laughs) So Lord, I just pray, even as I go on, Lord, that you would come 
Lord, come and open our eyes to how lost the world is without Jesus. Come and open our eyes to how lost we are without you daily, Lord, not only for our salvation, but for our sanctification, for our growth, for everything we need you, Lord. Come and open up our eyes, Lord. Amen. So Exodus 12, 2, verse 11 to 12. One day, when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and looked on their burdens, and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. He sees the problem. He sees the problem. The people of God are captive, sees it. What does he do? He looked this way and that. Then seeing no one, he struck the Egyptian and hit him in the sand. He sees the problem. He thinks he is going to be the solution. Now, let me just paint this picture for you. We see that out of Exodus, I, I'm, I'm speaking under correction, I think four or 600,000 men. That's not women and children. So we, we're speaking of over, well over a million, probably closer to two million people, uh, Israelites, Hebrew people, captive in Egypt. Moses goes, he sees the magnitude of the problem, he thinks, I'm going to kill one Egyptian. <laughs> don't you think, he was a bit doff, <laughs> like, don't you think there was something of a frustration in him, it was a good frustration, it was a godly frustration, he really saw the problem, but he didn't see how big the problem was. If he saw how big the problem was, he would not have tried to fix it in his own power. He tried to go in there and he sees it and he thinks, I'm going to do something about it. I want to say, how many of us do exactly the same? We start off our Christian journey, maybe some of you have progressed past this point, I think maybe some of you have, but you start off your Christian journey and you see a problem in yourself and you think, I'm going to fix it. I'm going to be self-disciplined. I'm going to stop smoking. I'm going to stop drinking. I'm going to stop having fits of rage. I'm going to stop watching pornography. I'm going to start reading my Bible five chapters a day. I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to. You have, we, we just, we don't know how big the problem actually is. We try and rectify these problems in our lives in our own strength. We think that we can do it, but we don't know how big sin really is. It's bigger than we can deal with, actually. It's like going in there and killing one Egyptian, hiding him and thinking, that's the solution. I stopped smoking. That's the solution. You don't know how big the problem is. <laughs> Let's, I wrote down a few examples of us doing it in our own strength. I've got three children in two years. <laughs> um, <laughs> The younger crowd that side say, whoa, that's so amazing. All the older people say, whoa. <laughs> that's rough. You know, when I look at my children, there is a temptation to see the areas that I don't like. And I don't want to raise children that I don't like, in the words of Jordan Peterson, because if I don't like them, you're not going to like them. So I want children that I like and you can like, right? And I see things in them that I don't like. And my temptation is to go in there and think, I am going to be the solution. I'm going to teach you the right thing. The pro the, what I see is correct. My solution is incorrect. I'm going to get to how God will teach us what the right solution is. I'm going to fix it. I'm going to discipline you. Those things have a place, but I'll in their right place. I'm going to have a family with good morals. I will teach them to have good morals. Do well at school. Look at my, my marriage, and I think, man, it's not reflecting Jesus as it should 
I'm going to fix it. I'm going to be a good husband. I'm going to wash the dishes. I've been trying that. I told my wife, if she does exercise for a month, I'll wash the dishes for a month. I'm on day three now, I think. <laughs> it's horrible. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I look at my job and I think I'm going to work hard and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make money, not for myself, but for my family so that I can give to others. It's not wrong, like, but, but inherently it's wrong because it's still relying on our own strength. I look at the church and I see a need. I see we need more of God. I was standing in worship and I'm like, praise God for the life that is here. In any church I go to, I'm like, God, there must be more for us. Amen? And you might sit here and you think, but this church needs more leaders. I'm going to be an elder. I'm going to be a deacon. I'm going to be a worship leader. I'm going to be a door greeter. I'm going to be a coffee, whatever. I want to do it in my strength. I want to rectify the problem. We don't know how big the problem really is, what people really need. I look at people pastorally around me and I think I'm going to get in there. I'm going to give them good advice. I've got a lot of life experience. I can teach them some life experience. It's your own strength. Look at unsafe people around me and I think if I can just learn the right arguments. I can argue with them in love. But I can argue with them. I can tell them why their viewpoints are wrong. It's not the solution. We don't know how big the problem really is. And so what does it, God does is we start there, I can, but then he takes us to, okay, let's say it, I can, I can't. It's the second thing he does. So he needs to take Moses to breaking point of realizing that his own power is futile. Exodus 4, verse 10 to 12. But Moses said to the Lord, oh my Lord, I'm not eloquent. So wait, let me pause here. Moses then runs away. He goes and works for his father-in-law. That's a humbling thing in itself, right? You're not an Egyptian prince anymore. You're going to go work for your father-in-law. For some of you, that's great. For some, not so much. He tends someone else's sheep. He goes through a time of humbling, living in the desert, and comes to a place where he sees the magnitude of the problem, and he sees the smallness of who he is, actually. He says, either in the past or since you have spoken to your servant." But I am slow of speech and of tongue. Then the Lord said to him, Who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now therefore go, and I will be with your mouth and teach you what you shall speak. Before God gives him that commission, he needs Moses to come to a place of humility and realizing that he cannot be the solution to the world's problems or to his own problems. He cannot do it. He learned the hard way. He learned by trying and failing. And I think so many of us have been there. We've tried and we've failed. You look at the sin in your own life. You try, you fail. Any amens? Is it just me? <laughs> like I've struggled. I look at the problem in someone else's life. I go for a coffee with them. I think I'm going to impart wisdom, speak to them, plead with them, show them the Bible. I'm going to do it. I'm going to help you out of your problem. A couple of months later, they say, wow, God spoke to me and he told me this. And then I get so angry sometimes. I'm like, no, but I told you that so many times. Now suddenly God told you. <laughs> but I tried, I tried in myself to be the solution. I look at unsafe people around me and I try to come with the most reasonable argument that I can. And I fail. And I've still got unsafe people around me that do not know God. I try and I fail. God needs us to come to a point of failure. 
But the beautiful thing is he does not want us to stay at a point of failure. You need to die before you can live, but he doesn't want you to stay only dead. It's so that his life can come out. Your life must pass away so that the life of God can shine through you. And the life of God only shines through dead things. You need to come to a place of realizing how utterly weak you are because before the strength of God can come. What does Paul say? In my weakness, God's strength is made known. How weak are you? How big is the problem and how weak are you? Do you have a revelation of your weakness? That's not something that gets preached in the churches nowadays, eh? Do all like, look at your five strengths that God can use you. No, 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 no. Firstly, we need to come to a place of saying, Lord, let me become less so that you can become more. Lord, I am too weak. You need to do it. But if we're standing in our own strength, we will not succeed. We will not prevail. It's so funny. When I started preaching, I think I realized this so powerfully. I I, um, got called into ministry and went through Bible school and worked at the Bible school and then went to Sunningdale to go serve on the eldership there uh, in Sunningdale. And the first couple of times I preached, I thought I was, man, I'm going to take people forward in God. I'm going to, yes, I'm going to do it. I'm eloquent with my words. I can do it. I wax eloquent. I've got the gift of the gab, you know. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do this thing. That's what I thought. And I preached, and I don't think anything changed. I didn't see it. I mean, everyone will come and say, nice preach, Leonard. Everyone does that anyway, so please don't do that. So the first person to speak to you after you preach is probably the devil <laughs> to come to you. Everyone will do that, but in your heart, you know, ah, I missed it. No one moved forward now. I, I don't believe they did. You miss it, and, and you become frustrated, You're like, oh, God, what do I do? Preaching is useless, but, and, and I remember the, 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 the great Will Murray, those of you know him, he came to one of my messages that I preached. I think he was coming to check me out, and he never even gave this feedback to me directly. I heard via the grapevine, Will said, nah, was not impressed. So <laughs> I needed to come to a point of failure before I could come to a point of trusting in God when I preach. Now, that does not mean I don't use the gifts that I have. It does not mean I don't stand and preach with boldness, but it needs to mean that I humble myself and say, God, unless you speak into the hearts of your people, nothing is going to change. Unless you give revelation that your revelation goes to the people, not mine, nothing is going to change. That's why Paul said, I do not come with eloquence of word, but I only preach Christ and him crucified. He knew that Christ was the solution, not Paul. And in all areas of our lives, we need to come to that place, a place of breaking, a place of saying, but I cannot do it. But God can. I can. Please, (laughs) humor me just a little bit. Say it with me. I can. I can't. But God can. And that's the title of this message. We can't stop with the I can. We can't stop with the I can't. We need to stop with God can. So what God does is God is going to come and set free his people. Moses could try and kill one person. God says, but there's two million. Let me be the solution. But Moses, you need to submit and surrender to me. I'm going to set my people free. And we know the end of the story. He did not. God wanted to use the singular person to help him come into a situation and free people out of Egypt. It was beautiful. 
So what God does is he sends these plagues that we read about in the book of Exodus. And it's so interesting, they say that the plagues, and many people believe that each of the plagues were, um, was basically God making a mockery of the Egyptian gods. So the Egyptians had a plurality of gods, different gods. They had the sun god, Ra, and the moon god, whoever, Luna, or whatever. I don't know what they called her. They had these different gods, and then God would come, and he would bring plagues in to basically show that he is actually the god of the sun. He is the god of the moon. He is the god of the waters. He is the God of the animals and of the insects. He is the God. And he, he sends Moses and he says, Moses, now by my power, you will go to the people, but I will show my strength to them. He sends in these plagues. He makes a mockery of the gods of this world. And then he climaxes it. He ends it with the final miracle that would be the clincher to set the people of God free. And the final one is a prophetic message that we need to get so deep into our hearts because it's a prophetic message of Jesus dying on the cross. We need a revelation of Jesus dying on the cross because then we will know that God can through the strength of Jesus' death on the cross. So what God does is the last plague that we see is the plague of the Passover. And it's a festival that is still celebrated by Jews and Christians thousands of years later. It's probably about 4,000, 4,000 years later now that it's still celebrated. And God, what God does is, I'm gonna read this to you. He says, this is gonna be the clincher. This the rest was just me making a mockery. Now I'm gonna show you what I can do. And when the world sees this, my people will be set free. This thing. And he says the following in Exodus 12, verse five and seven and 12 to 13. He says to them, go take a lamb and slaughter a lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, perfect lamb. Who is the lamb of God without blemish? It is Jesus. Look at this. It's a prophetic message about Jesus. A male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats. Then they shall take some of the blood. Jesus' blood was spilt on the cross for us. And you shall put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the house in which they eat it. So, so interesting. In another passage, it says that when you kill this lamb, you shall not break any of its bones. Jesus, the Lamb of God on the cross, when he died, if you were hanging on the cross during Roman crucifixion and you were still alive in the evening, which Jesus was, they would come and they would break your legs so that you cannot hold up the weight of your body so that you would suffocate. But with Jesus, for some reason, they never did that. They took a spear and, and, and purged it into his side. Never broke a bone in the Lamb of God's body, exactly like this prophetic image. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn of the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute my judgment. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you, the Passover festival. And no plague will befall you or destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. If the blood of the lamb is on our lives, death will pass us over and we will live. That is the blood of Jesus in the Old Testament. Now, the, the beautiful thing is this, God then says, institute this as a festival that you celebrate every single year, the Passover feast. And you take a lamb and you do exactly this thing that we did there, you do it once a year. Now, when Jesus comes, the exact day when Jesus was crucified was three to 4,000 years later on the Passover feast. 
as all the Jews were slaughtering their unblemished lamb, the real unblemished lamb of God was hanging on a cross and he died for our sins. When all of them said, we cannot break a bone, Jesus' bones were not broken and he hung on the cross for the sin of humanity. He said, I will be the solution. I will not only be the solution for salvation, but I will be the solution for sanctification as well. I will be your all in all. That death on the cross was not just your first step into a relationship with God. It is your relationship with God going forward. It's a beautiful thing that God did. And he wanted to give us a revelation that only when we apply the blood of Jesus in any area, that is where God's hand is at work. That is how the people came out of Egypt and went to the promised land. If you are in Egypt in your life, in any area of your life, let's not make it your full life, in any area of your life, the only solution out of Egypt is for God to come and sacrifice an unblemished lamb. And he did that. It is for you to realize that God, only by your power, only because you took that part of Egypt, only because you took the world upon your shoulders, you died for it, I can rest in your power and cry out to you and say, God, come save me from Egypt. When I look at the people around me, I can say, God, Jesus, you died for them, you come save them out of Egypt. That is the revelation that God can. It's that Jesus did it, now God can. So when I look at my children, I tease with them sometimes when they're naughty, I tell my wife, don't worry, they're not saved yet, <laughs> which is true, because ultimately salvation is going to be the only changing thing in their lives. Only if I can come to bring them to a place of surrendering to Jesus can I see everlasting fruits in their lives. And when I disciple them, I disciple them according to God and the Bible, not according to good morals, Amen. That's what I do. I'm like, what would God think of what you're doing now? What does the Bible teach us? That is a revelation that God can, but I can't. God, you need to come. I will pray for my children, pray for salvation, and pray that they will grow. That is the ultimate thing. I hope you're getting what I'm saying here. When I look at my relationship with my wife, the best thing for us is to be in flourishing relationships with God. The best thing that I can do is pray for her. The best thing that I can do is point her towards God because he is the one that will bring breakthrough in us. And the best thing I can do is to reflect Jesus' death on the cross through my life. God can. When I look at my job, I know that I'm not there for money, but I'm there to represent God. When I make money, I know that I will give it to God. That's why I believe we give a tithe. It is to say, God, all of this is yours. So I give a tenth. Everything is actually yours, but, but symbolically I give a tenth of what I have. I declare now that everything is of you. I am not the boss of my finances. Finances will conquer me if I hold on to it. But I give it to you. Anyway, and I can go on. You can have clever arguments with unsaved people, but only when they encounter Jesus, only when they see him, that is all that can really change their lives. I'm gonna just end with maybe a testimony from my own life. I shared it a week ago at our 4 p.m. congregation, and I'm happy to say, I don't know if you were there. Where are they? Where's the Stellenbosch people? Yes. Okay, you were there, <laughs> right in front of me. Sorry, I thought it was a girl with that hair, but... <laughs> um, I shared it at our 4 p.m. congregation uh, a, a week ago because then it was a, a fresh week old testimony for me. And now it's a two week old testimony. So I'm feeling a little bit more confident to share it. Uh, 
but it's, it's actually, so I'll tell you, I'll be open and honest, but two weeks ago, I prepared this message. I, at the moment, I lead two congregations. I lead the 4 p.m. and 6 p.m. congregation in Stellenbosch, and I was preaching at 6 p.m., and I prepared this message, and as I was preaching it, it's like God spoke to me while preaching. Ironic, eh? <laughs> you think you're there to teach other people, but then God gives you a revelation of your own life, which is, I think, how it should be. It should always stay open. Like, no one is above the leadership of God. No one. Not Andrew Seeley, not Brian, not me, none of us. All of us should stay under the hand of God. And I'm preaching this message, and I realize that I've got an area of my life that I'm trying to deal with in my own strength. And specifically, I'll be brutally honest with you guys, uh, two and a half years ago, we had twin girls, Len Cantlado, here with us today. And um, I, I think I've always struggled with anxiety for various reasons because of how I grew up. I never knew it. I think it was an underlying anxiety. Nowadays, all the young people speak about being anxious, right? But, and, and that's why I didn't even want to speak about it. I feel like I didn't want to be part of the statistics. But as our twins were born, we really struggled with sleep, like really struggled with sleep. And my anxiety started peaking to another level, to the extent that my breathing started um, becoming off. So I would have this cough. <laughs> where I, just out of the blue, I'd have these cough fits in a sense that it's not a panic attack, but I think it's like a mini, mini panic attacks that I would have regularly. And it would peak random times, like at night when the kids are in bed and I just go sit down on the couch, I, my breathing would struggle. In worship, because I'm at the church and I've got responsibility, during worship, my anxiety would peak. I'd be coughing right through worship. Many people won't realize uh, because of the music, but I'd, I, I just had, I had real anxiety issues. And it, it's, if you asked me, I would say, no, I don't know if I feel anxious, but my body was telling me I feel really anxious. And the, the remedy for me was like, I need to start exercising, but I can't because we've got a third child. Um, not because I'm brave, but because I don't plan. So <laughs> now we've got a third child. Now I can't exercise again. It's really, it's so difficult. I'm struggling and my anxiety is just up there. And I think, I need to sleep better, but now we've got a third child. And anyway, it's just like I can't get out of this rut, and I'm trying everything, and my poor wife can't watch the rugby sitting next to me on the couch. She wants to go sit upstairs so that I can sit because it's just so irritating for her, this breathing. And I, I tried everything, and I was just so frustrated with it. And I'm preaching, and I realized, Leonard, you've given up bringing this fight to God. You've thought that you will be the solution to your anxiety. But are you bringing it before God in prayer, saying, God, you are the only one that can, can conquer this? And ultimately, it was conquered on the cross. And that week, for the first time in a long time, it's, I'm, I'm so ashamed to admit this, I started praying about it again. And as I was praying, God opened up my eyes to a scripture in, uh, that, that Paul says. He says, one sows, one waters, but God brings the increase. And I had this aha moment that when I look at the church, I'm trying to bring the increase in the church. When I look at people and I sit for coffee, I get so anxious because I feel like I need to be the one that brings the increase in their lives. And that caused me such severe anxiety. And in the moments as I was praying about it, I realized, God, but I'm only part. I only sow. I only water. But you are the one that does it. Only God can started praying about it for two weeks now. I have, I have not struggled with my breathing one bit. It's, it's like, it's honestly, my wife will tell you, it's 
I, I stand here as a living miracle. It's a, it's a miracle. It's been two and a half years. I've tried everything. I've tried medication. I've tried exercise. I've tried everything. I just have not been able to conquer it. And in saying, getting the revelation that I can, no, I can't, but God can. And just bringing it before the Lord and saying, Jesus, ultimately on the cross, please, Lord, you are the one. He came and he brought breakthrough in my life. So I want to ask you, what about you? What about you? What about your life? Where are you picking up the area of saying, I need to make this grow? I'm sure it's for all of us. If it's not in your own life, it's in your family's life, in the church's life, in people around you's life. But can we come to a point of surrender and saying, Lord, only you can. That does not mean I'm passive. It does not mean I stand still. It means I'm a conduit to take God into a situation and say, okay, now God, you do your bit. That's what I do.